approximately 30 minutes prior to execution. A designated member of the execution team will establish telephone communication with the governor's office on behalf of the warden. The phone line will remain open to the governor's office during the entire execution procedure. A designated member of the execution team will escort the two executioners into the executioner's room where they will remain until the execution process is complete. The warden will read the warrant of execution to the inmate. Designated members of the execution team, supervised by the designated assistant warden, will apply wrist restraints to the inmate and escort him from his cell to the execution chamber. Designated members of the execution team, supervised by the designated assistant warden, will assist the inmate, if necessary, in positioning himself or herself onto the execution gurney in the execution chamber. Designated members of the execution team, supervised by the designated assistant warden, will secure the restraining straps. Welcome to Psychologia, a scientific exploration of the strange and pathological. I'm your host, Amaya Perda. As of August 24, 2019, there were 2,629 death row inmates in the United States. There are few topics that bring on as much emotional outrage and heated argument as capital punishment. It's the kind of life-and-death debate that divides friends, families, and nations, and it falls on a short list of subjects about which nearly everyone has a strong, inflexible opinion. These opinions tend to be based on emotional reactions to the snippets of information we come across in the course of our day-to-day lives, specific incidents or isolated facts that we hear and cling to and use to build an ever greater defense against opposing viewpoints. I'm guilty of this too, and today's episode will surely expose my bias, spoiler alert, I am against the death penalty, but I hope it will do more than that. This episode is going to bring you some facts, some history, and some research about the death penalty in the United States, and examine where we are now, and how we got here. One or more designated members of the execution team will attach the leads to two heart monitors to the inmate's chest. A designated member of the execution team will insert one intravenous line into each arm at the medial aspect of the antecubital fossa of the inmate and ensure that the saline drip is flowing freely. The team member will designate one IV line as the primary line and the other line as the secondary line. If peripheral venous access cannot be achieved, a designated member of the execution team will perform a central venous line placement with or without a venous cutdown wherein a vein is exposed surgically and a cannula is inserted at one or more sites deemed appropriate by that team member. One or more designated members of the execution team will remove, one at a time, from the pole attached to the gurney, the two saline bags and pass the bags along with the IV extension sets through a small opening into the executioner's room 
where an executioner will hang the bags on separate hooks inside the room. The designated team member will ensure that the tubing from the IV insertion points to the bags has not been compromised and that the saline drip is flowing freely. The earliest death penalty laws are 3,800 years old, although the practice was certainly in place long before then. The Babylonian Code of Hammurabi lists 25 crimes that were punishable by death, putting the punishment officially on the books. It appeared again in the 14th century BCE in the Hittite Code, and then again in the Draconian Code of Athens in the 7th century BCE, which was far more extreme. According to the Athenians, death was the only punishment meted out for all crimes. Rome's Law of the Twelve Tablets dated to the 5th century BCE and included such capital punishment methods as drowning, burning alive, impalement, beating to death, and, of course, crucifixion. As the centuries passed, the ways in which the death penalty was carried out became somewhat less brutal. By the 10th century CE, hanging was the normal method in Britain, and already there was some debate about continuing the practice at all. William the Conqueror put an end to capital punishment, except during war times, but this ban was lifted by the 6th century when, during Henry VIII's rule, approximately 72,000 people were executed. Once again, the methods had become incredibly violent. Records show that executioners were known to burn people at the stake, behead them, draw and quarter them, hang them, and even boil them alive. The crimes that could bring on such an end were also varied, and included things like not confessing to breaking the law when one was accused, or marrying someone who was Jewish. This list expanded over the next few hundred years, and by the 8th century, Britain's list of offenses punishable by death had grown to 222. Among these capital crimes were cutting down a tree and stealing a rabbit. This liberal use of the death penalty created a serious problem. Juries did not want to convict defendants who were brought to trial if they knew that the simple act of sawing through a tree trunk or snatching a meal would lead to being tied to a pole and lit on fire. Because of this hesitancy, Britain had to reassess. And by 1837, 100 of the 222 crimes that had been considered capital offenses were downgraded. Approximately 15 minutes prior to execution. Official witnesses will be secured in the witness room of the execution chamber by two designated Department of Corrections escort staff. Authorized media witnesses will be secured in the witness room of the execution chamber. The only persons authorized in the witness room are 12 official witnesses, including family members of the victim, four alternate official witnesses, one nurse or medical technician, 12 authorized media representatives, one representative from the department's public affairs office, one designated staff escort, and one designated security officer. Any exception must be approved by the warden. The execution chamber will be secured. America's history with the death penalty is, unsurprisingly, heavily inspired by Britain. Right from the start, when British settlers came to this continent, they brought capital punishment with them. 
just one year after the founding of Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement on North America, the first execution was held on the soil of the New World when Captain George Kendall was killed in 1608 because he was found guilty of being a spy for Spain. By 1612, the practice was further ingrained into the settlement's legal system when Virginia Governor Sir Thomas Dale implemented the Divine, Moral, and Martial Law, which allowed the death penalty for offenses like killing chickens or stealing grapes. Throughout the 17th century, capital punishment was instituted throughout the colonies in different ways. The Massachusetts Bay Colony conducted its first execution in 1630, while the New York Colony adopted the Duke's Laws in 1665, which allowed for the death penalty in cases in which the defendant was guilty of hitting his mother or denying the true God. Administration of Execution The warden will use the open telephone line to determine from the governor whether there has been a stay of execution. If the warden receives a negative response, he or she will proceed with the execution. One or more designated members of the execution team will open the drape to the witness gallery window and turn on the public address system. The warden will permit the inmate to make an oral statement, which will be broadcast into the witness gallery over the PA system. At the conclusion of the inmate's statement, or if the inmate declines to make a statement, the warden will signal that the execution process has begun. A designated member of the execution team will turn off the PA system. Over the last few centuries, capital punishment has crested and fallen off in many parts of the world. It is no longer legal in many countries with judicial systems similar to our own. It has been abolished in Western Europe, Canada, Mexico, New Zealand, and Australia, among others. It is still, however, enacted in the United States. During the first decade of this century, from 2000 to 2010, 1,461 people were sentenced to death in the United States, and 570 were killed in execution chambers. In truth, most people on death row die of natural causes long before they are put to death. The process of getting someone from trial sentencing through to the moment of execution includes a number of opportunities for appeal, which means that a person who is sentenced to die at the hands of the state never really knows if it will get that far. At this point, murder is the only crime punishable by death in the U.S. This gets a little murkier when broken down by state, however. First of all, as you probably know, not all states have the death penalty. As of this podcast, 30 states still use it, but 20 do not. Things are further complicated by the fact that not every state has the same laws when it comes to defining types of murder. First-degree murder, which generally involves premeditation, is pretty much the same across the board and is often enough for capital punishment in places where executions still take place. Some states, however, have specific statutes that distinguish first-degree murder from aggravated murder and require that there be some aggravating factor before the death penalty is handed down. Some of the factors that are often taken into account include the nature of the murder, whether other violent crimes took place during its commission, whether explosives were used, whether the victim was a police officer, a judge, a witness, a prosecutor, a juror, or a child, and whether the murder was related to gang activity. Different states incorporate other factors, too. 
In California, for example, where I live, murder for financial gain is also considered aggravated. In Vermont, where I'm from and where the death penalty is not legal, the killing of two or more persons at the same time counts as aggravated murder. In the presence of the secondary executioner and within sight of one or more members of the execution team, the primary executioner will administer the lethal chemicals in the following manner. The executioner will remove from the stand on the worktop the syringe labeled number one, which contains two and one half grams of sodium pentothal in solution. Place the blunt cannula into the open port of the IV extension set and push the entire contents of that syringe into the IV port at a rate that meets the injection resistance of the cannula. When the syringe is depleted, he or she will hand the empty syringe to the secondary executioner for safe disposal. This procedure will be repeated with the syringe labeled number two, which also contains two and one half grams of sodium pentothal in solution. At this point, a member of the execution team will assess whether the inmate is unconscious. The warden must determine, after consultation, that the inmate is indeed unconscious. Until the inmate is unconscious and the warden has ordered the executioners to continue, the executioners shall not proceed to the following step. As I'm sure you know, there have been many challenges to the death penalty brought before the Supreme Court of the United States. Most of these challenges are based on the 8th and 14th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. The 8th Amendment reads simply, Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. The 14th Amendment is considerably longer, but begins with this paragraph. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. For many people, these two amendments seem to contradict the use of the death penalty. First of all, there is no clear definition of cruel and unusual punishment, but it's easy to argue that killing someone is cruel, and in the context of a world in which bias and prejudice make it impossible for judgments to be the same for all, it is certainly unusual. The idea that no state shall abridge the privileges of its citizens also seems contradictory to the death penalty. What greater abridgment can there be than ending someone's existence? Nor does an execution seem in line with providing equal protection to all, especially once you hear the numbers regarding who tends to be sentenced to death. There are a number of specific cases that have affected the ways in which the death penalty is carried out in the U.S., but several are particularly important. By the 20th century, many states had abolished capital punishment altogether, but a couple cases led to a decade of stoppage. From 1967 to 1977, there were no executions carried out on American soil. When they started up again, the landscape was slightly different. In 1972, 
three black men from Georgia and Texas, brought the issue of capital punishment before the Supreme Court. The petitioners, Furman, Jackson, and Branch, had been sentenced to death, one for murder and two for rape. They argued that carrying out the sentences would be unconstitutional, pointing specifically to the issue of race. You see, it had become clear that the death penalty was being disproportionately applied to people of color. The case, known as Furman v. Georgia, resulted in the Supreme Court voting 5-4 to to strike down state executions and reduce all pending death sentences to life imprisonment. The court found that the evidence presented showed how haphazardly capital punishment was being handed down. Some of the justices noted that poor black defendants were far more likely to be put to death than their white counterparts and stated that the death penalty is unusual if it is discriminatory. They left room, however, for the punishment to be reinstated if laws were made to even out the sentencing. After Furman v. Georgia, a number of states got to work passing new statutes. One of the most significant was the implementation of guided discretion statutes, which were designed to split up the verdict from the sentencing. Now, defendants accused of capital murder are tried by juries in two phases, bifurcated processes. First, guilt is decided, and then the penalty is handed down. This allows for the verdict to be made separately from the decision about punishment, hopefully reducing the opportunity for bias to lead to death. In 1976, another case changed the course of the death penalty and put it squarely back in the constitutional camp. In Gregg v. Georgia, the Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was, in fact, allowed, now that the changes to sentencing statutes have been put in place. In 1977, executions resumed in the United States. Since then, more than 7,800 people have been sentenced to death, more than 1,500 have been executed, and, perhaps most disturbingly, a total of 165 people who were sentenced to death were exonerated before their execution. The executioner will remove from the stand on the worktop the syringe labeled number three, which contains 20 milliliters of saline solution. Place the blunt cannula into the open port of the IV extension set and push the entire contents of that syringe into the IV port at a rate that meets the injection resistance of the cannula. When the syringe is depleted, he or she will hand the empty syringe to the secondary executioner for safe disposal. This procedure will be repeated with the syringe labeled numbers 4 and 5, both of which contain 50 milligrams of pancuronium bromide, and the syringe labeled number 6, which contains 20 milliliters of saline solution. Appointing jurors to a capital murder trial is, as you might expect, a somewhat complicated process. They must be willing to sentence someone to death, and this issue is brought up right from the start. During voir dire, all potential jurors in capital murder cases are asked about their willingness to vote for the death penalty. This is called death qualification. The Supreme Court has actually ruled, in a case called Wainwright v. Witt, that potential jurors whose beliefs substantially impair their ability to consider a death sentence must be excluded from the jury. Jurors who fall into this category are most likely to be female, black, and liberal. 
Overall, death-qualified jurors are more likely to vote to convict the defendant, and they tend to be more receptive to aggravating factors and less receptive to mitigating factors during the penalty phase. Jurors who are asked a series of questions about their willingness to vote for a death sentence during voir dire often figure out that both defense attorneys and prosecutors anticipate a conviction and a death sentence, and many jurors wrongly believe that they cannot take into account the full range of mitigating factors, or that if they find aggravating factors to be present, they must vote for death. Many jurors also mistakenly believe that unless they vote for death, the murderer will be eligible for parole. Research shows that if the instructions given to jurors fail to give them clear, comprehensible guidelines about how to make the life or death decision, racial bias may creep into the decision-making process. As I've alluded to several times now, research has shown that the best predictor of a death sentence is the race of the offender combined with the race of the victim. In one study, black men who were convicted of raping white women were 18 times more likely to be sentenced to death than any other racial combination. Black defendants are more likely to be charged with capital murder and convicted, and, once convicted, black defendants are more likely to be sentenced to death and executed. If the victim is white, prosecutors are more than twice as likely to seek a death sentence than if the victim is black, and black people who kill a white person are about four times more likely to be charged with capital murder than when the victim is black. In another review of the statistics, the odds of receiving a death sentence were found to be 4.3 times higher for murderers of white people than for murderers of black people. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court has determined that this does not make the practice unusual or unfair. In the 1987 case of McCleskey v. Kemp, the court held that some unfairness is tolerable and inevitable because discretion is an inescapable aspect of capital sentencing. Also of some concern are a few of the numbers about the people who are being put to death. 70% of inmates on death row have less than a high school diploma or GED, compared to just 13% of U.S. adults in the general population. Furthermore, it's been estimated that over 20% of death row inmates have a serious mental illness. Only 4% of American adults fall into this same category. The executioner will then remove from the stand on the worktop the syringe labeled number 7, which contains 120 milliequivalents of potassium chloride. Place the blunt cannula into the open port of the IV extension set and push the entire contents of that syringe into the IV port at a rate that meets the injection resistance of the cannula. When the syringe is depleted, he or she will hand the empty syringe to the secondary executioner for safe disposal. Finally, the procedure will be repeated with the last syringe, labeled number 8, which also contains 120 milliequivalents of potassium chloride. One of the biggest arguments in favor of the death penalty is that people believe it reduces future murders by deterring murderers who will be scared of being put to death. This, however, is erroneous. Overall, states with the death penalty actually have significantly higher rates of murder than states without it. 
Multiple studies conducted in the United States and in 12 other countries provide zero evidence that capital punishment suppresses the murder rate. In fact, the opposite is true. Several researchers have concluded that executions increase murder rates, and research from 70 studies have found that executions usually stimulate a small increase in murders in the weeks following an execution, with an uptick as high as four murders above an area's average. This is called the brutalization effect, and it's stronger following highly publicized executions. Brutalization effect seems to indicate that executions may actually weaken inhibitions against violent behavior and desensitize people to killing. After all, if a state is modeling executions as a means to an end, why shouldn't the citizens of that state follow suit? The opposite of brutalization effect, deterrence effect, assumes that a person's fear of being executed will stop them from killing. However, there is no evidence that people engage in this kind of rational weighing of costs and benefits before committing murder. After all, murder is usually a crime of passion and frequently committed under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and most murderers believe that they will not be put to death for their crime. There is no concrete evidence that the prospect of being executed brings on more fear than the prospect of life in prison without parole. Throughout the execution process, one or more designated members of the execution team will observe the heart monitors. If the heart monitors reflect a flat line reading during or following the complete administration of the lethal chemicals, the physician will examine the inmate to determine whether there is complete cessation of respiration and heartbeat. Once the inmate is pronounced dead by the physician, A designated member of the execution team will record the time of death on the lethal injection procedures checklist. The warden will notify the governor via the open phone line that the sentence has been carried out and the time of death. A designated member of the execution team will turn on the PA system and announce to the gallery that the sentence has been carried out. One of the most significant reasons to reconsider the use of the death penalty is the high rate of mistakes that occur during death penalty cases. One analysis of data pulled from cases spanning 1973 to 1995 found that 68% of death sentences were reversed because of serious errors committed at trial. These errors included things like an incompetent attorney, found in 37% of the reviewed cases, faulty or misleading jury instructions, found in 20% of cases, and prosecutorial misconduct, found in 19%. But most appallingly, 7% of the defendants were actually found not guilty of the crime that had sent them to death row. I realize that this episode makes my view of capital punishment clear. I am certainly among the people I mentioned at the top who have a strong opinion and are rather inflexible in their view, but I hope that I've shared enough information with you to make it apparent that I have arrived at this viewpoint not simply through being emotional, but by looking at data. I believe this is how we should all approach things as serious as the death of another human being, and I'm not alone in this perspective. In 2001, the American Psychological Association released a statement making their own position, also based on fact and study, known. And I want to close today by sharing some of it with you, 
in hopes that it summarizes some of the most salient points that I've made. Whereas the recent application of DNA technology has resulted in, as of June 2000, 62 post-conviction determinations of actual innocence, with eight of these having been for persons sentenced to death at trial, and whereas research on the process of qualifying jurors for service on death penalty cases shows that jurors who survive the qualification process death-qualified jurors are more conviction-prone than jurors who have reservations about the death penalty and are therefore disqualified from service, and whereas race and ethnicity have been shown to affect the likelihood of being charged with a capital crime by prosecutors and therefore of being sentenced to die by the jury, and Whereas capital punishment appears statistically neither to exert a deterrent effect nor save a significant number of lives through the prevention of repeat offenses, further, research shows that the murder rate increases just after state-sanctioned executions. Therefore, be it resolved that the American Psychological Association calls upon each jurisdiction in the United States that imposes capital punishment not to carry out the death penalty until the jurisdiction implements policies and procedures that can be shown through psychological and other social science research to ameliorate the deficiencies identified above. Thank you for listening to Psychologia. This episode was created and produced by me, Amaya Perda, with original sound design and music composition by Cameron Carter. Our guest star tonight, who read excerpts from the state of Florida's execution by lethal injection procedures, was Matt Savins. If you like what we do, please tell people about us any way you can. Follow us on social media at Psychologia Podcast, or visit our website for links to source materials and to subscribe to the Psychologia Report at psychologiapodcast.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another scientific exploration of the strange and pathological.